Just a quick content warning. This episode contains discussions of trauma and traumatic experiences involving the abuse and neglect of a child, substance use and abuse, post-traumatic stress, and therapeutic approaches to trauma. Stories of trauma can be difficult to hear. And yet, what a gift it can be to listen to somebody tell a story of their traumatic past with grace, poise, even humor. With the benefit of hindsight and a lot of personal healing and support, stories of traumatic pasts can become shining examples of what is possible for the rest of us, no matter what we've experienced or what we were exposed to in the past. Today on the podcast, a look back at two recent conversations with guests on the subject of trauma. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. Today, we'll be listening back to excerpts from two recent interviews that explored traumatic experiences and unique paths of healing. We'll hear a clinical definition of what trauma is and understand how trauma affects almost all of us. And we'll hear how two different forms of therapy helped our past guests and authors overcome their own traumatic experiences. First, we'll listen back to my 2023 conversation with Michael Baldwin and Dr. Deborah L. Korn, Co-authors of Every Memory Deserves Respect, a book that blends personal memoir based on Michael's experiences with trauma alongside Dr. Debbie's 20 years of experience as a researcher and clinician working on modalities that help people heal from trauma. We'll also listen back to a clip from my 2023 conversation with Christine McDonald, former exotic dancer, memoirist, and author of Face Value, From Working the Pole to Bearing My Soul. First, let's listen to that conversation with Michael Baldwin and Dr. Deborah L. Korn. In this clip, Dr. Debbie helps us understand what trauma is, what it isn't, and just how prevalent trauma is for most adults in the course of everyday life. For those who have a history with uh, trauma, Debbie, I wonder if you could, at a really lay level for us, layperson level, tell us what trauma is, what it actually is, and how trauma affects the brain. Sure. So <clears throat> trauma is a part of life. <laughs> um, as you said at the start of the show, something like 70% of adults have experienced at least one significant shock trauma, big T trauma. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. But we define trauma in our book as any experience that feels overwhelming, triggers strong negative emotions like shame or terror, and involves a sense of powerlessness or intense vulnerability. Now, trauma is both objective and subjective, right? It's both the event and the experience of the event. And what we know is that no two people are going to experience a single event in the same way. What might be traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for the next person. Though, of course, there are some kinds of events that anyone would agree are traumatic with a big T. So it's not just what happens to you or what happened to you, but it's also 
most importantly, what happens inside of you, how it affects you, how you interpret the experience. And we know that the greater the number of traumas that you're exposed to, the greater the psychological and the physical toll. We know that trauma is cumulative, meaning the more traumas, the greater the effect. And we know that it's also developmentally bound, which means traumas that occur earlier in your development, earlier in life, often have greater effect. We're more vulnerable as little people than we are as adults. And when I talk about trauma, I talk about big T trauma and little t trauma. This comes from Francine Shapiro, the developer of EMDR. Big T trauma refers to events that most anyone would consider traumatic, shock traumas, where the person perceives a potential threat to their survival or the survival of loved ones. So here we're talking about childhood, sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, uh, rape or assault, physical assault, uh, the traumatic death or the murder of a loved one, um, combat-related trauma, devastation related to an environmental disaster, um, witnessing violence. When we talk about little t trauma, we're talking about experiences that people might not necessarily recognize as traumatic or events that might not necessarily meet the diagnostic manual criteria for so-called, quote, trauma. So here we're talking about attachment trauma. It's sometimes called developmental trauma, uh, criticism, covert bullying, experiences of betrayal, um, experiences involving humiliation or failure or aloneness, uh, subtle microaggressions, as well as blatant discrimination or hostility related to race or ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, appearance. Um, examples of little t traumas from adulthood might be experiences related to a divorce or losing a job, a difficult move, or the discovery of infidelity or a partner's affair. Uh, examples in childhood feeling ignored, feeling different, uh, unable to measure up, or a sense of powerlessness to control kind of the craziness or the chaos in your family. Um, I would always mention when I talk, I always mention when I talk about trauma that we're talking about both commission and omission. By commission, we're talking about things that are committed right? It refers to the things that happen to you, an assault, the emotional or physical or sexual abuse. When we talk about omission, we're referring to situations where things were supposed to happen, but didn't. Situations where someone was not properly protected, they were not properly listened to or cared for or valued. So here we're talking about experiences of neglect, deprivation, abandonment, uh, discrimination, alienation. And as far as trauma in the brain is concerned, it's helpful to think of the brain as being made up of three smaller brains. And we talk about this in the book, the thinking brain, the emotional brain, and the instinctual brain. Now, the thinking brain is responsible for thinking, talking, remembering, reasoning, creating. The emotional brain is about feeling and remembering, detecting threat, interacting with others. And the instinctual brain has to do with things like sleeping, eating, breathing, heart rate, uh, blood pressure. And in response to trauma, the emotional brain in conjunction with the instinctual brain mobilizes and winds up hijacking the thinking brain. The limbic system of the emotional brain goes into overdrive. 
uh, the sympathetic nervous system automatically kicks into high gear and everything gets focused on survival. The brain prepares you to fight or take flight, right? We see things like heart rate increases and pupils dilating and airways opening wider. And we become hyper-focused, scanning for danger, looking for escape routes, routes, sometimes freezing when the threat feels particularly overwhelming and there's no possibility of escape. And the thinking brain's executive control network gets suppressed, cutting the thinking you out of the decision-making loop. So ideally, after a trauma is over, the thinking brain is able to reestablish control. But in many cases, particularly when there's a diagnosis of PTSD, the emotional brain remains stuck in overdrive and continues to inhibit the thinking brain's function. People remain in high alert and particularly reactive to anything that reminds them of their trauma. The brain isn't able to effectively evaluate whether someone or something is a real threat or not. And with prolonged or repeated exposure to trauma, trauma, chronic trauma, this state of high activation or hyperarousal, freeze, fight, flight, becomes chronic. And it can lead to anxiety, difficulties with self-regulation, irritability, aggression. And sometimes when the level or the duration of stress becomes too great, a person's nervous system shifts into a shutdown or a collapse mode, what we call hypoarousal. And many complex traumatic stress disorders reflect this chronic state of shutdown or immobilization. It shows up as despair, hopelessness, numbing, dissociation, And of course, we know that when people are uncomfortable in their bodies, either from hyperarousal or hypoarousal shutdown, they turn to things like drugs or alcohol or food or sex or other addictive behaviors to try to regulate their nervous system. So we see people coming in for therapy with all different kinds of problems, presenting issues um, that don't necessarily look like they're connected to trauma. But indeed, as we poke around and look a little more deeply, we find out nine times out of 10, there are traumatic or adverse experiences in a person's history that can explain some of these behaviors that have taken shape over time. Thank you so much. That's so thorough. We could have a whole hour long many hours long conversation just about that one answer alone. And you're, you're both nodding. Michael's nodding. And Michael, I want to turn over to you because you told us a bit earlier about, you know, um, the, the superficiality or of, of your resume and how that represents nothing of who you were as a person and who you are as a person, that facade effect of using work to, um, kind of like hide from yourself in these different things that you were, that you were carrying with you. Would you mind telling us a little bit about the the kinds of, of, of trauma that you experienced and a little bit of how um, how that was affecting you behind the scenes, if you will, throughout your not only just your career but but your life. So we can kind of kind of ground some of these these concepts into the story that you've told in your book. So here's a contrast to what you're describing earlier as this person with this resume. When I walked into Dr. Magnanita's office, um, I knew that a lot of bad things happened to me when I was young, but I never conceptualized them as being traumatic. Um, I never thought of them as having anything to do with my adult emotional issues and struggles. Uh, I never thought of myself as a victim or a survivor. And I also didn't consciously remember some of the things that had happened to me. I only had fragments of memories that made 
like little sense to me. In fact, I remember even I would share some of these with other people. Looking back now, I'm canning amazed that I actually did that because when they got put together, they were pretty bad, you know, events that took place. Um, so I came to understand my trauma history by way of EMDR therapy with my EMDR therapist. And in my case, it started with what he referred to as willful neglect on the part of both of my parents. Um, I'll give you one little anecdote. I mean, when I was maybe around two in Denver, I'd be put in the backyard with a diaper, bare feet, and no supervision, just left there. And I would find my way down the back alley and down into the intersection of where we lived in Denver. And a neighbor would see me and then bring me home. And the weird thing about this is, you know, growing up, you know, we, we would laugh about these stories like this. Um, but, you know, these days that would be a phone call to the Childhood Protective Services. Um, so, you know, I also was a um, victim of bullying. I had a, my older brother was a really uh, serious bully at home. And I had a bully, bullies at school. And anyone who's listening who's had to deal with being bullied, you know that you live in a state of terror. You never, ever feel safe, ever. Um, as far as abuse goes, I was uh, abused sexually, physically, and emotionally. And you put all this together, and it's not surprising. I couldn't focus in on anything. I couldn't tune into anything. As an adult, I was always... Uh, confused as to why I didn't know anything about politics. I didn't know anything about local government. I didn't even know about music. I didn't know anything about, uh, you know, most of the things that people take for granted because it was just all kind of unavailable to me because of this just crazy mixed up brain that I had it was basically short circuited. So, you know, for the longest time growing up, I couldn't read. I had to have extensive tutoring. I would go to regular school and then I'd go to reading school after regular school. I would a math tutor and a reading tutor. This is an elementary school when I was a child. Um, and I was also accident prone. So uh, was a word my mother used all the time. And so I probably had about five or six concussions on my forehead, always the same place. I would just fall over and land on a rock or the sidewalk or something. And, and another example of sort of misattuned parenting, my parents... Uh, solution or remedy for that was to put a piece of industrial carpeting on my forehead. I have many pictures and you see these kids and then this one sort of freak that was me with this piece of huge piece of industrial carpeting on my forehead, which was their parenting style. Um, so, you know, aside from all that, I was, um, you know, fine. <laughs> so we see the cumulative effect and that was a great example. Thank you for that, Michael. Thank you for sharing. I know you've shared it often, but I'm sure it's, well, I'm projecting, but I, I'm sure it's not always pleasant to relive it every time you talk about your book and your and your life story. But so we hear there the various levels, the various forms of abuse, um, which which happened over a prolonged period of time, the developmental and attachment uh, traumas around the n neglect. Those uh, so there was the there's trauma based on omission, as you were saying, Debbie, and commission, right? The things that were were exactly. done that that resulted in the traumatic abuse, like being hit or or being touched inappropriately. Then the uh, commission, the things that weren't done, being left in the backyard to fend for yourself at an inappropriate age and wandering into the street where you could have been hurt or you know or worse. Um, and you also shared, Michael, there that 
this had a pretty, it seems pretty noticeable now, looking back in hindsight, having done the work that you've done and, and the processing and the healing, that this had a cumulative effect on your development and how you were, you know, how you were able to or, or inhibited from developing um, psychosocially in in school and and beyond. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's, um, and then of course, as you said, you, you finally entered into Dr. Magnavita's office. I think that was in 2017, right? Yes. So going on six years ago, um, Debbie, now that we've set the stage with Michael's story a bit in his history, can you tell us about EMDR specifically and, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, for those who have never experienced it or don't know anything about EMDR, or like I said, that tongue twister, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing as that therapeutic modality. Give us a sense of what that is, please. And what if we imagine Michael in Dr. Magnavita's office in 2017 for the first time? I will ask you about that, Michael, because I'd love to hear your experience. But um, tell us about what what we know or what we sense or what we think knows, uh, think know happens to the happens to the brain and to someone's psychology when they're experiencing MDR. Big question, but take it, take it, please. And yeah, show, tell us what you know. Yeah. That question. <laughs> so uh, as you said, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Let me just take that apart for a moment. Desensitization refers to the reduction of distress, fear, anxiety. Reprocessing refers to the reevaluation or the restructuring of thoughts and beliefs and the transformation of one's sense of self relative to past traumatic experiences. It's about moving the past into the past so you can live more fully in the present. Now, the eye movement part, uh, Francine Shapiro, the developer of EMDR, accidentally discovered that purposely moving your eyes horizontally back and forth while focusing on a traumatic memory leads to a reduction in the vividness and the emotional intensity of the memory. It leads to a reduction in PTSD symptoms. She developed an effective protocol for treating PTSD and trauma-related problems using this, what we call bilateral stimulation or back and forth eye movements, and published her first research study in 1989, working with uh, rape survivors and Vietnam veterans. So hence the name eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Now, EMDR is um, a memory-focused psychotherapy that helps people deal with the impact and the legacy of trauma and adverse experiences in their lives. It's based on the idea that psychological problems are related to a failure to adequately process traumatic experiences or memories. So unprocessed traumatic memories that are kind of um, frozen or locked in our nervous system continue to affect how we perceive things, decisions we make, reactions we have, the beliefs we hold about ourselves and others. And then present day triggers activate these unprocessed unprocessed traumatic memories. So by triggers, I mean anything that resembles the original event in some way or form. And and these triggers lead to symptoms that cause ongoing distress. Now in EMDR therapy, we help clients access and activate their unprocessed traumatic memories with a set of focused questions. And then we jumpstart the brain's information processing system using bilateral stimulation. Uh, With EMDR reprocessing, a client's distress eventually decreases and relevant information located perhaps in other parts of the brain, helpful present-day perspectives get integrated. So beliefs like, wait a minute, it's over. 
I'm safe now. This happened 30 years ago, or this happened a year ago. Um, I was only a kid doing the best that I could. It wasn't actually my fault. I'm in control now, right? I have choices. These are the kinds of beliefs that get integrated over the course of EMDR therapy as compared to the trauma-focused beliefs that people come in with. And there are shifts in thoughts, but also in feelings, behaviors, and physical sensations. Healing involves spontaneous movement toward more positive thinking, more manageable feelings, and a significant reduction in a level of disturbance experienced in one's body. And the theory behind EMDR argues that the mind can heal from psychological trauma in the same way that the body heals from physical trauma. We're all physiologically geared uh, toward the achievement of optimal health. Yeah, so there's the qualities there to break down. And thank you for that it was a big question, but that great answer um, of EMDR. So we're using eye movement to replicate bilateral stimulation. So that's the movement of the eyes, correct? So we're kind of activating different areas of the brain. Is that accurate to say? Um, Well, there are many, many different hypotheses about why EMDR works or how EMDR works. Bilateral stimulation refers to any facilitated stimulation that challenges the client to orient or track laterally back and forth with their attention, stimulating both sides of the brain. Um, And we now know, uh, since the development of EMDR back in 1989, 87, 89, that multiple forms of bilateral stimulation can be effective with EMDR. It doesn't just have to be eye movements back and forth. It could be that the client listens to tones back and forth, right? Beep, 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 right, left, back and forth. We could uh, have them focusing on a light that goes back and forth or their therapist's fingers. We might tap on a client's hands as they rest in their, we might, the therapist might tap on a client's hands as they rest them in their own lap. Um, So there's many different forms of stimulation that we use. Um, And now there's something like 30 randomized controlled trials. That's kind of the ultimate form of research um, that can be cited to substantiate the positive effects of eye movements. You know, we can now unequivocally report that um, eye movements reduce negative emotions imagery, vividness, and emotional arousal, and that eye movements also increase or enhance memory retrieval, recognition of true information, positive neurophysiological changes, and more flexible thinking. And there are, just getting back to your question about what's happening here, how do we explain this? Um, There are many, many hypotheses about the mechanisms behind EMDR's effectiveness. So for example, there's a response referred to as the orienting uh, response hypothesis, um, where it said that eye movements elicit an orienting response, right? Look over there, look over there, look over there. Um, an orienting response that activates the parasympathetic nervous system, leading to a de-arousal effect, a relaxation response. And this gets the brain into an optimal state for processing. There's also a hypothesis called the working memory hypothesis or theory that suggests that eye movements, as well as other forms of stimulation, focusing on a memory while engaging in some other activity, like doing math or spelling words or doing dance steps or tapping out a rhythm, 
tax the limited capacity of working memory, leading to a reduction in the vividness and emotionality of a traumatic memory. There is a lot of research supporting this hypothesis. It's very, very exciting. And then uh, Francine Shapiro's original hypothesis hypothesis was the REM hypothesis, which says that eye movements activate the same neurological processes that occur in rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep, leading to a reduction in negative emotion, more flexibility in thinking, increased associations between our memories, and increased insight. It's so fascinating. And I and I appreciate that there's been such a wealth of research that's been clinically shown that this is very effective. And yet there's still space uh, of, of not completely knowing how exactly it's working, but the different hypotheses of how it may be working. But we know it works. And I thank you for, for that breakdown, uh, Debbie. That, that's really helpful. So Michael, back over to you. What do you, Can you tell us what you remember about your first experience with EMDR therapy? What was it like for you? And I'm sure our listeners will want to know if the impact felt more or less immediate. Was it like flipping a switch or was it more gradual? I, and I know it varies from person to person, but I'm curious about your experience. So when I walked into Dr. Magadita's office, I was, I would say, at a, a probably the lowest point. So I was really ripe for intervention. Um, and uh, for me, the experience was uh, of profound relief. And um, our initial work really focused on the severity of ne the neglect that I uh, suffered. You know, th those are the, the omission things that Debbie was talking about. You know, no one was taking care of me. No one was, was paying attention to me. There was all, all the things my parents should have been doing were not happening. So I had no attachment to either caregiver. So that first session was like there was a dam that was holding all of this longing and grief and sadness uh, and isolation and all those things. And it's as if Dr. Magdavita just punched a hole the side of, uh, size of a door in the bottom of the dam and just this these waves of this emotion would just would was just flowing out through me, and the result of that for me was definitely immediate. And I remember leaving that day from the very first time I saw him, the very first time I did EMDR, with this profound sense of relief and feeling like I had about two more quarts of lung capacity that I could feel when I would take a deep breath, um, and uh, it was. Um, like that pretty much every time I saw him, I saw him over the course of two years, um, uh, either weekly or most weekly or biweekly. And um, it was always the same. It was always immediate. And there was a sense of profound relief, which I did not get uh, through the 22 years of seeing other therapists, talk therapy, CBT therapy, intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. None of the therapists ever mentioned or brought up the concept of trauma. Mm -hmm. And none of them knew anything about EMDR. Mm -hmm. And Michael, it, forgive me for interrupting. It just feels important to let folks know where you were at psychologically at the point that you walked into Dr. Magnavita's office in terms of uh, substances, in terms yeah. of phobias, in terms of PTSD symptoms, et cetera. So, so um, Debbie's referring to the, you know, my, my state at the time, which had uh, kind of devolved. It was kind of a race to the bottom because um, I was I was suffering from, well, two nightmares that I had chronically over 40 years that were equally as terrifying, 
the first time I had them as they were the most recent time I had them. They never changed. And I just had them repeatedly. Um, one was about heights. One was about being quote unquote arrested and put in jail. And I learned to understand what they really meant in my sort of closing uh, period with Dr. Magnita. Uh, I had phobias. Uh, I didn't know they were phobias at the time. I just saw it there just the way I was about using a, a stall in a men's restroom as a boy, uh, uh, fear of heights, um, and getting into adulthood. Any suggestion of intimacy with a woman was, was literally panic-inducing. And again, at the time, I didn't know what a phobia was. I thought this is just the way that I was. So um, there was a lot of alcohol abuse, blacking out, and then later um, alcohol combined with Vicodin, um, and uh, just, I, I look back and there was just, you know, increasingly um, high dosages of things I could, you know, ingest to try to numb or try to wall myself off from what was buried there, but I didn't know it. Yeah. And so all of the different, the variety of expressions and experience, like the expressions of the trauma, the tra traumatic symptoms coming out through phobias, fears, uncontrollable reactions, different situations, your nervous system spiking out of control, attempting to attempting, you know, to to regulate those symptoms with substances to kind of numb out or go to sleep. And um, I just want listeners to understand that the overlaps of these of these symptoms, this constellation of symptoms and experiences, all tied into these still complex experiences of trauma and abuse, but it's, it's a big knot, but you can see all the threads there. And it sounds like what EMDR therapy does with the help of, of a trained professional uh, and, the, and the memory work and so forth helps you start to like un, unthread all of the knots and, and help, you know, help your brain to process the memories that, that have been frozen or stuck in place. Um, so thank you for that, Michael. And, and Debbie, I'm curious about uh, if you could tell us a little bit, if not with like specific numbers, how more or less, you know, quick is relative. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean like snap your fingers immediate, but how quickly compared to, as Michael said, and I want to loop back around to that as a future therapist, that those 22 years, um, and, and I think you said eight different psychotherapists, um, that relied mostly on talk therapy, um, with, with no whiff of trauma being perhaps a part of what you were experiencing post-traumatic, um, uh, symptoms, how quickly relative to, you know, those like 22 years for, in Michael's case, can someone with these kinds of symptoms find relief through EMDR? Do we have any research that, yeah. that indicates yeah. that? Well, I, you know, when people ask me how many sessions are needed to achieve healing, um, I always say it depends, right? It's hard to say what the average length of treatment is for somebody working with an EMDR therapist because that depends on so many things. But early research in EMDR um, tells us uh, that 90% of adults dealing with a single episode trauma are able to eliminate or significantly reduce their PTSD symptoms in three or four sessions. So, you know, an assault, a car accident, a single episode, um, we can knock that out very quickly. Um, I was involved in a research study with Bessel van der Kolk comparing EMDR to pro. I mentioned his name just because listeners might know his name from his best-selling book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. 
Um, and we did a study comparing EMDR to Prozac um, uh, in the treatment of adult PTSD, eight sessions of EMDR compared to a comparable period of time on Prozac. EMDR was ultimately superior to Prozac in reducing both PTSD symptoms and depression. Um, by the end of treatment, all of those in the EMDR group with adult only traumas had lost their PTSD diagnosis, along with 75% of those with childhood trauma histories. And six months later, at follow-up with no additional treatment, almost 90% of the childhood abuse survivors had lost their PTSD diagnosis, and a third were completely asymptomatic, and we were just blown away. And, you know, there's a recent meta-analysis that looks at all the research that's been done, uh, all the trauma treatments that uh, are being applied out there in the treatment of PTSD. And EMDR was found to be the most cost-effective, the most cost-efficient of 11 trauma therapies evaluated. And I'll mention um, that in the Netherlands, they are treating people in intensive EMDR treatment programs, you know, consecutive day programs. They're knocking out PTSD in four days with people who have complex trauma histories, you know, both single episode traumas, adult traumas, but also folks that have significant childhood abuse. So we are getting better and better, more and more proficient all the time in how to apply EMDR and working with complex cases. That was a clip from my 2023 conversation with Dr. Deborah L. Korn and Michael Baldwin, co-authors of Every Memory Deserves Respect. To listen to the rest of that interview, including a very sweet, heartwarming, and happy ending to the story of Michael's experiences, click through the show notes for a link to the full episode or visit thenewstory.is podcast. Next, let's listen back to my interview with Christine McDonald from earlier this year. Christine's memoir, called Face Value, From Working the Pole to Bearing My Soul, tells the true story of her own experiences with trauma, including how a severe skin condition left more than 80% of her face scarred as a youth. Her book tells the story of her life as an exotic dancer for nine years in Waikiki, Hawaii, her hometown, in the late 80s and early 90s. In this clip, Christine shares how the writing of her book and telling her story needed to be sidelined so that her mental health and healing could be prioritized before her story was told. Well, one of the beautiful things about therapy, I'm such an advocate for therapy. Can you imagine, Dave, if if in this world, every single one of us had that special therapist to go to, to just sort of, you know, make sure that we're okay in our headspace? What a wonderful world this would be, right? Another, I mean, I can't even think about it. But for me personally, therapy has taught me, and I've been in and out of therapy since I was 19. I'm 54 now, proudly. And we earn every year. So yes, I'm 54. One of the things that I can tell about my mental health is I know when I need help. I know when I need to go back. And writing the story was, it surprised me in a couple ways. The first way is I'm needing to go back into a time where I was high and I was numb. And, you know, I am not a expert with addiction and I don't um, ever pretend to be, but when you revisit those types of things for me personally, uh, it, I was triggered and I wanted to use. I just thought it was my only mechanism for um, helping my mental health back then. But of course now, 30 years later, I know that I can just call up my therapist and say, 
I need some help revisiting these moments because when you revisit moments that you were so numb and self-anesthetized, it's sort of a new lens that you're looking through your story. Um, I started out writing the book as a vanity project. And the, the more, the deeper I got into the harder stories, I just wanted to wrap my arms around that girl, that young girl, you know? So that's mm. where, that's where taking the pause to really focus on my mental health came from and uh, really helping me finish it because those, those voices of self-doubt come in when you least expect them. And so I had one voice on, in one part of my brain saying, you've got the story, you're talented, go for it. And then I had this, another part of my story, who are you? No one's going to listen to you. Who's going to buy this book? You don't have, you know what I mean? So it was a little bit of a juxtaposition. So just being self-aware that just comes with years of therapy. You go on to write in your book, Christine, that the first time you felt beautiful is when you were on stage. Uh, and then as as the appeal of, of exotic dancing started to gather some momentum, you also write, and this is a quote, it was a no-brainer, utilizing my sexuality, my slamming body, and my love of dance in exchange for that feeling of power. As a bonus, I was making tons of cash. Based on your experiences, how would you describe what it was like for you to step into that um, uh, that world of exotic dancing for those who don't have direct knowledge? And how did it activate, or I sh maybe the word would be like honor, all of those needs that you were feeling as a young person, the need to be seen and accepted, the, the you know, you mentioned the anger that you had towards your mother specifically, um, the want to, to be appealing and to feel beautiful, especially based on your experiences with AC. So like, what was that like for you to, to step on the stage for those first times? Oh, 100% validation. Validation, 100%. Also, that sense of power and control. When I was on stage, also, you have to remember, I was high. I was, you know, I was doing cocaine. I was snorting uh, morning, noon, and night. I was, I was doing a lot of pakololo, a lot of pot, drinking like a fish. So I was never fully in my power. I was never fully uh, cognizant on stage. I was sort of just in a cloud of um, delusion, but boy, did I have a good time. Boy, did every, I mean, all those dollar bills coming at me. It was a big, see, who's Freddy Krueger now? Like, do you know what I mean? It was so very validating um, and uh, a lot of fun. But the thing is, when you get wrapped up into a lifestyle like that, and you know that the only way out is, is not going to be easy, you just do more drugs. <laughs> That's what I did for nine years. But yeah, to answer your question, validating, powerful. Yeah. And so you mentioned that you kind of had this awareness that, you know, as the years go on, you spent about 10 years um, mm -hmm. dancing and you detail in your book some of the, the stories, you know, for those who don't know, at this time in Waikiki was like celebrities and rock stars and you and your, your group of fellow dancers were treated like rock stars and going like club to club in limos. And there was just you know, drugs everywhere. Um, you're living in this tropical paradise. It's it sounds like a fever dream, right? Um, and 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 you lived it. This was this was life. This was a re your reality, and it's ticking all these boxes for you. The needs for feelings of validation, power, and control. I appreciated in your book how when you were describing this longing that you had, you know, later in life for that feeling of like power and control and validation when you'd step on stage that your therapist, you say, called you out on that and was like, you are high. Like that was like not a real feeling of power. You were just, 
intoxicated and it was giving you this sensation, but it was still also ticking these. I, I keep saying ticking these boxes. What I mean is like it, the the needs that you were feeling fundamentally as a person, as a human being, based on your childhood, your upbringing, were being kind of or being satiated in a way, but not in the healthiest of ways and in ways that would ultimately let you down. So you mentioned a, a moment ago, Christine, that there was a superficiality or a fragility maybe to these feelings that you were feeling going, you know, at, over these 10 years. What were some of the signals that the life you were living was starting to lead you astray or not give you everything that you were hoping in terms of like roundabout looking for healing? Yeah, I went from using cocaine to cocaine using me for sure. And, you know, what started out as a stripping career to validate my beauty ended up stripping my beauty away. I mean, really. So it was a full circle moment. What the little things started to seep through the cracks. I didn't know that I was clinically depressed at the time. I didn't know I had PTSD from my childhood traumas. And so the hangovers were getting old and turning 30. Do you know when you're in your late twenties and you're thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be 30. My life is so, oh my God, what have I done? And now you look back at it and you go, oh, that's adorable. Oh my God, you're adorable. So when I was 28 years old, I was thinking to myself, I'm not going to be a grandma on the pole. I got to figure something out here. I don't have a college education. I'm stuck on this Island and, and anywhere I go, it's a five and a half hour plane ride. Um, what am I going to do? What's, what's the next step? And so I write about this in the book where there was a gal, I was in the dressing room, I had my makeup container out and I was just about ready to get dolled up for the night. I'm my eyes. I'm so hungover. I'm so burnt out. I don't see the pretty blue that I have in my eyes. I just saw gray, a very dull shade of gray. And then I see this girl walk into the dressing room about 19 years old. So about 10 years younger than me. And I instantly got all of these flashbacks of just how many years I've been in the game. And, and then that's just sort of catapulted my, okay, you need to do something with your life. So between the hangovers and um, the, the multiple, multiple heartbreaks that I gave myself in actuality, and you'll have to read the book <laughs> to get to that. Answer. But, I, you know, when you choose partners that are not healthy for you and you can't figure out why, yeah, that's, that's to go to therapy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I want to ask you as well, Christine, uh, you are absolutely right that people are going to have to go get your book in order to, to hear all of the juiciest details and, and all of the candor. You've done such a great job of writing with, like I said in the intro, there's there's a lot of humor. Sometimes it's self-deprecating. Sometimes it just it lightens the mood because you're talking about heavy heavy content, heavy heavy subject matters. And of course, we're talking about like trauma, complex PTSD, and 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 drug use and abuse. It's it's not always the easiest conversation, but it's a, these are important conversations to have because they're real, right? Um, and to that point, I'm curious about leaving the life of exotic dancing behind. And I know it was hard and it kind of almost sounded to me like when I was reading your book, like it was a lot like how I am exposed to stories of those who are dealing with substance use and abuse or addiction where it's a little bit uh, start and stop. There's there's um, commitments to it and then there's regression. How How did you break out of exotic dancing? Was it possible to leave like the job, the work of it behind without leaving the lifestyle behind? And was it possible to leave the lifestyle behind without leaving Waikiki? Because it's such a small, it was at the time, such a small knit community. And I imagine just like 
the lifestyle was in your face every corner you turned. It was absolutely. Waikiki is three miles long and it consists of three major streets. So you're absolutely right. And then when you factor in the misfits and the outcasts and the people that live uh, and are working in the underground world, such as, you know, the sex work industry or the stripping industry. uh, Yes, it's a very small, it's a very small community. So the first thing I did was I left the island and I thought in my young naivete that as soon as I leave, I'll just start fresh. And that worked for a little while, but every time I would go out meet, meet some friends, I started waiting tables, met some friends, those, um, tr- that not triggers, the, um, the cravings for partying were seeping through my psyche. And I thought, okay, I can shake this off, but because the lifestyle is so unique, uh, I, there were many, many times where my quote unquote um, civilian life sort of cl- clashed with my old party life. In other words, I would meet some friends from the restaurant where I was waitressing and then we'd go out clubbing. And their night, their idea of clubbing is just you go out, you dance, you have a couple drinks, you go home. My night of clubbing is I'll see you in a couple of days. Do you know what I mean? So I really had to learn how to regulate my new lifestyle. And again, always getting back to the therapy, finding the right therapist to me was key and learning that you cannot run away from your problems. You can change your zip code, but if you have those internal issues and it's all about your why, why did I start taking the drugs? Why did I choose this life as a, as a stripper? As soon as you can dig into those whys, then you can start the healing process, which is what I did. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you, Christine, a little bit about your your therapy journey? Because this wasn't in our, our the the questions that I came up with. But would you mind answering a couple questions just out of curiosity? Of course. Uh, uh, well, I am curious if um, for your experience as a whole, it sounds like the therapeutic process therapy has been really important for you. You mentioned the importance of having a good therapist, finding the right one, which I think a lot of people who aren't uh, who are new to therapy think that every therapist is exactly the same or has the same modalities or experiences. Um, But there's a little bit more of like a matchmaking process that is important to find someone that kind of like works for you, works with you. And I'm curious about if, uh, so I'm curious about like your journey as a whole and, and how that has continued to support you. I'm also really interested if, and you might not know this like language or lingo or terminology because I'm actively a student of this stuff, but if there have been certain modalities or experiences for you um, that have been particularly helpful, like if there's been, if it's just talk therapy and kind of like processing different things out, if you've done anything that's specific um, to trauma recovery, kind of just curious for what comes to mind for you. Well, I can speak to the therapist that I'm seeing now, and she's an attachment therapist. And so we focus on the attachment styles or lack thereof with my childhood. And uh, you explained it perfectly. It is like a dating game. And and I call it, uh, you know, Aetna roulette or whatever whatever insurance provider you have, it's kind of like roulette, right? I mean, they, here's my zip code. Oh, here's some doctors. Half the time they're, they're not updated. You know, the lists are old. And so it's really just a matter of finding the right one. And that could take a while and it's exhausting. And it, and it gets me to, I mean, it's a little disheartening because people all, some people have a, um, a belief system with therapy. It takes too long. It's too expensive. And you can't find the right one. 
all of those things could be true, but think about your life and how you want it to be. What is the life you want to live? And if the right therapist can help you, and for me personally, each one that I've had, they have not all been great, but the great ones help you navigate your own road by answering the questions that you're seeking the answers to, because you already know the answers. And a good therapist is not going to tell you what to do. A good therapist is going to help you unveil those roadblocks. And my self-sabotaging roadblocks is I just didn't want to, I didn't want to grow up. I didn't want to face the fact that I was the one causing all of this chaos. And as soon as I realized I have more power than I realized that I, that I thought that I did, my whole world changed. That was an excerpt from my 2023 conversation with Christine McDonald, author of Face Value, From Working the Pole to Bearing My Soul. We hope you enjoyed this best of episode. To hear the rest of these interviews in full, scroll into the back catalog that we have in our, our primary feed for the New Stories podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or you can click on the show notes for this episode to find direct links to these full interviews. When in doubt, visit us at thenewstory.is slash podcast for more. That's thenewstory.is slash podcast. If you're enjoying the work we're doing on this show, these intellectual, thought-provoking conversations with talented guests and storytellers from all walks of life, please, please leave us a rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify. That helps to build the public credential of this show, which is only a little over a year old, but we have amazing interviews coming your way. More interviews soon. Thank you for listening to The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Until next time, take care, stay well, and story on.